Well, there was a woman who was teaching a Sunday school class one time with a room full of toddlers, everyone's dream scenario, I'm sure. In the room was also her little precious four-year-old daughter as well. And she was teaching about the creation of the world. And so thinking through how am I going to teach these four-year-old children about creation, something that's huge, something that's big, she said, oh, I've got a plan. I'm going to create questions for these children, and then they're going to give answers. And so she comes into Sunday school class, and, and she says, well, class, who made the trees? And the kids shouted, God did. The next question was, who made the sun? The same answer, God did. Who made the animals? God did. Who made you? God did. The teacher got a response that she wanted, so she was walking a little bit taller that day. So all the kids left with their parents and they walked home or went, went to their cars and drove home. And she, with her little daughter, got in the car and drove home as well. A few hours later, this teacher, the mother, walks into a living room, her living room, and she sees all of her toys, the kids' toys, laid out across the floor. So many toys, so, in fact, that she could barely even see the carpet underneath. She called for her daughter to come into the room. And as her daughter walked down the hallway, the mother could feel this sense of frustration that all parents have felt at one time or another, that, that am I going to scream or am I not going to scream kind of question. And she sees the daughter come around the corner and she says, why in the world did you think it was okay to leave all of these toys all over this room? And she's thinking in her head this question. And so when her daughter comes in, she says, who made this mess? And the daughter looked up. She smiled, the biggest grin on her face. She said, God did. The mother knew who did it. She knew that it was her daughter. It was no one else in the house. Her daughter created the mess. But she wanted to hear from her. She wasn't prepared for the answer that her daughter would give. Uh, but the truth is, is that at least that little toddler was listening to something in church, Right? Of course God didn't make the mess, but the little girl did. But in her mind, everything that happened, whether it was good or bad, was because God did it himself. But that's all that this little girl knew. That's all that she knew. She, she was taught that the trees were created by God, that, that people were created by God, that animals were created by God. Well, certainly this mess must have been too. To her, this was the right answer, but, but it's, it's funny to us, but, but have you ever thought about how often that we operate this way, that we create faulty assumptions about God and how it colors everything else that we believe? This is especially true when we read something in Scripture that bothers us, something that's disturbing. Well, this passage that, that Ken just read, it is a, a difficult passage. It's easy to write it off as something archaic, something that's of, of ancient origin, some strange example of how the Bible is just full of barbarism and violence directed by God, because plenty of people believe that. Plenty of people read this passage and say, well, this is just ancient, this is crazy, this is God directing someone to kill his only son. On the other side, for someone who loves and appreciates the Bible, it's easy to make this passage just one about Abraham's obedience, isn't it? 
That all all of this passage is talking about is, is how Abraham was faithful, how he was obedient, and he's a great man of God. Both of these ideas are wrong, and we'll soon see this. So let's dive into this text this morning. The first thing that we see in this chapter, Genesis 22, is that Abraham's faith was tested. Remember, up to this point, he's had an up and down relationship with God. Not on God's end, but on Abraham's end. God, God made that covenant with Abraham, and Abraham sometimes obeys, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he does good things like winning battles against invaders and people who are not very good people, and then other times he abuses people. He would go through periods of faithfulness and obedience, and other times he would sin. So what was this test? Look at verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Thousands of years later, we know that Abraham was being tested. We, we see this. We see it all unfold. So we know the end of the story. We have the Bible completed and preserved, and, and God's word has, has stayed true for thousands of years. We know the beginning. We know the middle. We know the end of the story of God's dealing with humanity. Most importantly, we know that God has sent the Messiah that they've been waiting for. But Abraham didn't. He had faith in the promise of God, but he had no idea that this was some kind of test. He didn't understand the purpose of what was happening here. And so God tells Abraham, he says, take your son, your promised son, this one that you've been waiting for for so long, and take him up to the top of this mountain, and you kill him. God tells Abraham a few things. Take, go, and offer him. Now you may remember um, if you had a children's Bible with those beautiful paintings that probably look nothing like the characters in the Bible. And you probably remember this. This is a a pretty pivotal moment in the the history of the Bible. And and the picture that I remember of this was was, uh, uh, Isaac laid out on the wood. It was just a few sticks of wood. And then Abraham kind of has his arm back ready to slay his son. Now, if you removed Abraham from the picture, it looks idyllic. It looks really a mountaintop. Who wouldn't want to be on top of a mountain looking down, right? But in reality, this would have been a horrific scene because both of these two knew what happens to to animals that are sacrificed. The process of a burnt offering is bloody. The first thing that would happen was the the animal or the, the sacrifice would have had its throat cut. And then it would be dismembered. And then the parts of the body would be thrown onto the fire and to the smoke until it was completely consumed. See, Abraham had seen what happens on a battlefield. He's seen all of those horrific things that happen when sword meets flesh. He's seen those things. He's experienced those. He he knows those. Those pictures don't go away. But this one's different. This person, Isaac, was no soldier. He did not volunteer to go to war. He didn't fight. This was his son. What must have been going through his mind at this point? 
Moses, the author of Genesis, it's surprising. He, he doesn't include really any more details about this. It's a very bare bones, matter of fact account of what happened. And so our minds are, are busy filling into the rest of the story because we want to know what's going on in his mind. We want to know the human condition, the, what, what's happening here. Those with kids, you're probably uncomfortable with this story. Just like I am. I love my three kids and would die to protect them. There is nothing that anyone could say or do that would cause me to want to kill my children. And so I'm trying to picture what Abraham must have felt like. His mind is racing as he walks up the mountain with Isaac. And, and most scholars think that, that Isaac at this point was youngest would be late teens, but probably somewhere in the early 20s. And they say, well, how do you know that? Verse 6 says that Abraham took the wood and gave it to Isaac, so he must have been old enough to carry the wood and go up the mountain. So this is not a baby boy. This is not a five or six-year-old. This is a, a grown, at this point, a grown man. Like I said, I love my kids, but as the, my kids get older, my love changes a little bit. It doesn't lessen. It's just different. I have a Almost 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 4-year-old. The way that I respond to, to my boys and to my daughter is very different. My daughter is cuddly. She's still sweet. She's got the, the chubby cheeks, and so I pinch them. And I'll, I don't do that with my older kids. But I can have conversations with my older kids. We, we enjoy the same things. We, we, we watch baseball together. We can have these conversations that goes beyond turn on Paw Patrol, right? That we have deep conversations. The relationship is strengthened over the years. So you can imagine right now that, that, that Abraham walking up this mountain knows what he's about to do. And this isn't just his baby son. This is a young man he's grown to enjoy to be with. They're friends. He cares deeply about his son the same way he did when he was born. But it's changed. It's different. It's a deeper relationship. And so the question that's in his mind is, is this definition of turmoil. Uh, should I do this? Do I obey what God says, or do I spare the life of my son? Passages like this are troubling. Think about how you've heard this before. It's a story of Abraham's faithfulness, but have you ever wrestled with the ethics or morality in here? What in the world is God trying to do here? The reality is when we start thinking, if we heard a voice in our head telling us to go kill our children, we're not doing it. These passages have troubled me over the years. This kind of stuff was just skipped over when I was a kid. I, I never heard this. It was just never addressed. Is God a moral monster for this demand? What kind of God would do this? If God is loving, how could he tell Abraham to do something that we all would agree is horrific? How could God do this? There's a few things that you may find helpful as you deal with this, this specific passage. First, Abraham, even though he made many mistakes, he still knows that God is just. In Genesis 18, when Abraham intercedes for Sodom, he says this to God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The second thing Abraham uh, did, he did not believe that Isaac would die. Look at verse 5. 
And then Abraham said to the young man, young men, stay here with the donkey, and I with the boy will go over there and worship and what? Come again to you. See, Abraham had faith that he would return with his son. I don't know, I don't understand this, I don't know what you're doing, God, but I have faith that you will make this right. You're always going to do the right thing. I don't know how, but I trust that you will. He believed that both he and Isaac would return. In verse 7, Isaac asks Abraham where the lamb would come from. And in verse 8, Abraham says what? God will provide the lamb. You may be saying, well, I don't see that in the text. I don't see what you're saying. There's no way to read Abraham's mind, so we can't believe. We, we, we don't know what he believed fully. Well, if you go to Hebrews 11, verse 19, it says, He, Abraham, considered that God was even able to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we know that Abraham believed that he would return with Isaac. He trusted that God would provide a way out of this. He trusted that God would spare his son, or as the author of Hebrews writes, he would at least raise him from the dead. See, when we read the Bible and we see lots of violence happening, but we, we read that and we're disturbed, but we don't see the purpose for some of these things. We don't see what's underlying the text here. Third, when we see this story in light of the entire Bible, and this is so important, when we see this story in light of all of Scripture, it makes sense. Throughout the Bible, God tells prophets to do things that God does on a bigger scale. So he gives prophets kind of smaller stories in order to show a bigger truth. What's happening in Genesis 22 is hideous, but only if you look at it out of context. Now think about this. So much of what we read in the prophets is strange, and if we just take it as individual stories, they're disturbing. Hosea, right? God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute, something I've never told anybody to do. But God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute. And you read that and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. How could God tell someone to go marry someone who is just sinful, right? That, that is just unrepentantly sinful. But when you read the book of Hosea, you see it as why God told him to do that. Through Hosea, God wanted to provide a, an illustration to Israel about their unfaithfulness. He wanted them to see the seriousness of their sin. And so when we see that in light of the, the truth of what God is saying, when we see Hosea's command to go marry a prostitute is a small picture of a bigger truth, it makes a lot of sense of Hosea, doesn't it? It's much less troubling Passages like Genesis 22 are difficult. And in fact, it's one of the most common reasons people become atheists today is that they actually read the Bible. You say, wait a minute, what? The, the trend that's been seen as of late is that the people who are leaving the faith are people who've actually read their Bible. They know their Bible. It's not that they've given up and have, I'm not going to read it. No, it's actually that they are reading it. They're troubled by this and they say, I'm done. They read these passages, I can never worship a God who tells someone to kill his son. I can never worship a God that tells someone to go marry a prostitute. And they're becoming atheists. They're not reading the Bible correctly, though. They're not understanding context. They're not seeing the bigger picture of the story of God's redemptive plan. There's a pastor in Santa Cruz, California named Dan, Dan Kimball. And Dan wrote a book recently, and it's been very helpful. It's called How Not to Read the Bible. 
And in it, he gives four things that are helpful for us to remember when we study scripture, especially when we come to difficult passages. Number one, the Bible is a library, not a book. And I'll unpack these in a minute. Number two, the Bible is written for us, but not to us. Number three, never read a Bible verse. And number four, all of the Bible points to Jesus. See, the Bible is 66 books that together tell the story of God's plan. There are different genres, different literary devices that are spread out over 1,500 years, different cultures and different languages. There are many passages of the Bible that are not intended to be interpreted literally, while much of Scripture is. So it's helpful to see the Bible as a library. When you go into a library, you have a, a poetry section, right? You have a history section. You, you have, you have a, a section prognosticating about the future. And the Bible is the same. There are all these books that have been compiled. There are all these uh, books that have been compiled to make one big library. Second, the Bible is written for us but not to us. And this is where many have gotten into trouble. We take verses out of context and apply them to our lives as if God is speaking directly to us about our situation. The books, about, uh, books of the Bible were written to certain cultures, to certain people for certain situations. Those cultures were very different from our own. Third, never read a Bible verse. Now this isn't saying don't read your Bible. But we have a terrible habit of taking verses out of context because they fit really well in a coffee mug or a t-shirt. That when we read the context of those verses, <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense now. This verse that was happy, mm -mm. it's talking about God's destruction. There was one pastor who, who wrote an entire article about how God laughs. And he took two words out of a verse where it says God laughs, but he failed to say that God laughs at the destruction of his enemies. That doesn't sell posters for your living room, does it? Finally, understand that all of the Bible, each of the 66 books points to Jesus the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit caused, inspired multiple authors, dozens of authors to write one cohesive story that has at Jesus at its center. All of the Bible points to Jesus as its subject. The story of the entire Bible points us to the gospel. Beginning in Genesis and going throughout the law, we, we see that we are sinners before a holy God. The books of history in the Old Testament show us that no one is good enough to please God. The heroes of the faith are heroes, but like us, they have flaws and they need a savior. The books of poetry show us the beauty of God, beauty that can be seen even in a world that's defined by its sin and rebellion. The prophetic books of the Old Testament are pleas from God to his people to turn away from their unfaithfulness and live in obedience to his commands. The Gospels show us Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. Acts tells the, the story of how the gospel spread and how the church was begun. The New Testament letters give us instructions for life and for doctrine. And finally, John's revelation tells us that Jesus will one day return to restore his creation back to its original intent. The entire Bible points to Jesus. Jesus is the subject of every book. Now, with that whole picture in mind, let's reread these verses 3 through 9 and see how this was not an isolated incident of violence. Rather, it was part of God's sovereignly orchestrated plan 
that screams Jesus throughout the whole thing. Let's read these. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and two, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Do you see that this is a type of Christ happening here? This is uh, uh, thousands of years before Jesus, and it's saying, here, we're pointing you to Christ. And when you have this in light of the New Testament, this is, my goodness, this is one of the most Christocentric passages in all of Scripture. But notice what happens next. Look at verses 10 through 14. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You see the connections here? And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is to said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. As Abraham was ready to kill his son, God reveals that that was never part of his plan. The angel comes to Abraham and tells him not to kill Isaac. And then Abraham looks up and sees a ram. See, God's plan all along was to provide a substitute. And you say, why? To point us to Christ as our substitute. This is the purpose of Genesis 22. It's not bloodlust. It's not a father just killing his son. No, it's to say, here, await the Messiah that's going to come. And when he does come, I want you to know it's him. But the problem, as we see time and again in Genesis, is that Isaac is simply a pointer to Christ. Isaac is not Christ. Isaac's road to be sacrificed accomplishes nothing outside of what it points us to. So don't be troubled by this passage. If Isaac represents Jesus, then Abraham represents God in this story. God says, uh, Paul says in Romans 8.32 that God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Abraham's willingness should comfort us. Why? Look back at Romans 8. Verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you see this passage as merely a story about Abraham's faith, you'll miss the point and you will be bothered by this. 
rightly so, but in its context, you see that God was just exposing his plan. He was unfolding his plan for us and for all those who would read this. But even though Abraham's faithfulness here isn't the main point of the passage, we do see him obey God. In verses 15 through 18, we see that Abraham passed the test. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God confirms the promise again, but notice how he did it. God swears an oath by his own name. This is the first time in scripture that we've seen this, so this is a big deal. Abraham is is likely thinking about all of the other things that, that God has promised him. All of those other promises that God has made. And fulfilled the promise of a land, the promise of of a son, of an heir, the flaming torch running through the, the carcasses. And now God is making a bigger and better promise. That he will bless Abraham and multiply his offspring greater than the stars in the sky and the sands on the beach. In other words, God always keeps his promises. The covenant and the promises are unilateral, meaning that they are are made and kept by God alone. This is vital to understand when you read through Genesis. Abraham was unable to fulfill his side of the covenant. See, for so long, maybe you have too. I just assumed that when someone makes a covenant, because this is how we work, when we do a contract, it's two parties writing the contract. One party says, if you do this, then I agree to do this. And the other says, if you do this, I agree to do that. And so we naturally think this is exactly what happened in the Old Testament, that that God said, if you do this, then I'll give you this. And Abraham said, well, God, if you do this, then I promise to do this. But how soon after that covenant was made did Abraham fail? In In modern terms, he broke his end of the deal. Is the contract null and void at that point? No. Is the contract over? No. Why? Because it was God who made the deal. For so long I believed this, but the Bible said that Abraham couldn't keep up his end, so the covenant is made by God and God alone. There was nothing that Abraham could do to keep his end of the bargain. The beauty in this is it shows us that the promises of God are firm and they never go away. Should give us hope. I have three thoughts in conclusion today. First, God reserves the right to test your faith. The question for Abraham was whether or not he believed the promise of God. And every single one of us will have to answer that question too. Do we believe that God keeps his promises? Second, Abraham's faith was demonstrated by what he did and by what he said. He did not waver in chapter 22, even though that's, uh, God told him to do something that all of us would probably run away from. Abraham was faithful. His actions demonstrated his faith. Notice the wordings, the, wor- the way it's worded. He rose early, they walked together. And then look at what he said. He said, here I am, the lad and I will return. God will provide, God will see to it. He had faith. Third, The main point of this passage is that God provides. 
in correcting bad behavior, bad behavior that was people were being anxious about all sorts of things, Jesus says this, look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Likely the biggest question that any of us will ever have to face isn't whether or not God was faithful. The biggest question is likely this, how could a loving and faithful God do this to one of his chosen people? We have no right to remove or avoid difficult passages in scripture because there are plenty of those. Just because they make us uncomfortable is not a reason for us to stop. There are many passages that make us uncomfortable, but they are no less God's word than anything else found in scripture. Our responsibility is to search the scripture and see the truth of God contained in it. And in fact, when you do that, you cannot avoid how this passage fits perfectly. And I mean perfectly in the story of God. Look at verse 18. God says this to Abraham. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God's promise may seem, if you just read it out of context, if you just read it in this verse or this passage, it may seem like, wow, God's given Abraham all sorts of stuff now, right? It's not what he's pointing to. God's promise may seem like that. That's what I always thought. Abraham believed and had faith, so God blessed him. But verse 18 isn't primarily talking about Abraham's then and there. God's word points us to something bigger. The promises that God has made to Abraham don't find their fulfillment in Abraham or Isaac. The promises find their fulfillment in Christ. The promise fulfilled in Jesus. See, our greatest problem is that sin has separated us from God. Abraham couldn't fix it. Certainly couldn't fix it. Neither could Isaac. Neither could any of the other heroes of the faith. And neither can you. You can't fix this either. Though most of us try. Most of us make attempts to, to fix our spiritual state on our own. It, we say that well, if we can just set our minds to it, if we focus, if we do this or this or that, that, that we'll be okay. God will be pleased in me if I just do these few things. We're taught from a young age that we're good at whatever we do, that we can accomplish anything if we just set our mind to it. And that's the mantra of the world today. But the Bible says that none of us are good. The Bible says that we are not good enough. The Bible says that we are all unrighteous. We're all bad people when we compare ourselves to the holiness and goodness and righteousness of God. See, God is our measuring stick. It's really easy to compare ourselves to one another. I'm better than him. Better than her. But that's not who we compare ourselves to. The Bible says that we are to compare ourselves to the holiness, the perfection of God, and with that we all fail. Have you ever thought how you measure up? Look at yourself rightly and you'll see that there is no way that you can. That chasm that our sin has created is too big for any of us to cross. We need, we require a mediator, someone to stand in the gap to allow us to go from here to there so that we can boldly go before the Father and call him Father. Abraham was waiting for this person to come. He was looking through a glass darkly. He saw types and shadows, but Jesus had not yet arrived. 
But Genesis 22:18, that promise, like Genesis 3:15, points us to the day when the Messiah would arrive. The one who would crush the head of the serpent is the same person who would bless the nations. Do you see the connections here? That this taken out of context in isolation, Genesis 22 is bloody, or possibly bloody, and it's disturbing. But Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who would do all of the things that Abraham and Isaac couldn't do. They had faith, and their faith was seen as righteousness. Genesis 22 is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So the question is, what about you? Are you trusting in your own goodness, thinking that somehow you can do enough good, that you can do enough good things to, to make God pleased with you? That you can do enough good deeds to warrant your pre, uh, admission into God's presence? Or do you recognize your sin, you bow at the feet of the Savior in repentance and faith and say, it's not me. But what Jesus has done for me. That his righteousness has been credited to my account. Can you say that for yourself? If not, I want you to stay afterwards, talk to me. We'll stay as long as you need. We'll talk. But be certain that if you were to die right now, that if you were to stand before God and God says, why? That you can say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. This is the story of Genesis 22. It's pointing to the Savior who is necessary for us to be made right with God. And this is the story that's unfolding all throughout Scripture. Trust in Christ. Christ is the true and better Adam, Abraham, and Isaac. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful.